0: Welcome to JourneyWithJesus.net, a weekly web scene for the Global Church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, Is It Good for Us to Be Here? It's based upon the lectionary readings for February 23rd, 2020, Transfiguration Sunday. It's Transfiguration Sunday, the apex of the liturgical season we call Epiphany. After weeks of hints and intimations, a star, a dove, a baptizer's voice in the wilderness, today we emerge into full sunlight, blinded as God parts the veil and shows us Christ's majesty. All of the synoptic gospels tell the story of the Transfiguration, underscoring its importance to the early church, and over the centuries the event has accumulated meanings, most of them abstractly theological. Growing up, I was taught that the Transfiguration is important because it reveals Jesus' divine nature, foreshadows his death, secures his place in the stream of Israel's salvific history, exalts him above the law, Moses, and the prophets, Elijah, and prefigures his resurrection. Weighty and important stuff, no doubt. But here's my confession. I'm not sure I like the Transfiguration. I'm not sure it serves us well. Here's why. For as long as I can remember, I've measured the depth and success of my faith by the number of mountaintop experiences I can truthfully claim. Have I felt the Spirit in Sunday morning worship? Has Jesus spoken to me? Have I seen visions, spoken in tongues, encountered God's living presence in my dreams? Most of the time, the answer is no, which means I've spent most of my life feeling like a spiritual failure. Deep and mature Christians, I've spent years assuming, have experiences akin to Peter's on the mountaintop. They see visions and dream dreams. They have actual conversations with the God who speaks to them in audible English. Jesus reveals himself to them in spectacular ways they can't describe or deny. They don't have to squint and strain to find God. God shows up in their living rooms in technicolor glory and blows their minds. It's not true, of course, this hierarchy of holiness, this way of measuring piety, and yet it lingers in me, this yearning for a particular kind of affective experience to come along on a regular basis and validate my faith. The truth is, I like and want and crave and covet Christian mountaintops, and stories like the Transfiguration don't help. One of the many problems with my God-on-the-mountaintop version of Christianity is that it prompts me to carve up and compartmentalize my life, to separate sacred from secular, the mountain from the valley, the spectacular from the mundane, as if God is somehow more present during a rousing worship set, a stirring sermon, or a silent retreat in a seaside monastery than God is when I'm doing the laundry, returning a library book or driving my son to his friend's house. In its worst iteration, mountaintop Christianity is addictive, such that we spend our days pursuing a high we conflate with God. When we don't experience the high, we feel empty, unloved, angry, or bored. Meanwhile, we don't notice the ever-present God in whom we actually live and move and have our being. Desperate for the mountain, we miss the God of the valley, the conference room, the schoolyard, the grocery store, the street corner. Worshipping the extraordinary doesn't make for healthy faith. In our gospel reading this week, Jesus responds to Jesus' transfiguration with an affirmation immediately followed by a proposal. Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings. It is good for us to be here. Is it? Well, in some ways, yes. In some ways, Peter is absolutely right. It is good to set aside times and places for contemplation. It is good to gaze upon Jesus. It is good to move out of our comfort zones and confront the indescribable otherness of the divine. Until the transfiguration happens, Peter and his fellow disciples experience Jesus as a teacher, a storyteller, a healer, and a travel companion. His face, his manners, his voice, his mission, all are familiar to them familiar, endearing, and safe. Then one day, high up on a mountain, the unimaginable happens. Before their very eyes, Jesus changes, becoming at once both fully himself and fully unrecognizable. The man they think they know is suddenly more, suddenly other, and the path that lies ahead of him, a path that must end on another high place, a hill called Golgotha, upends everything the disciples think they understand, About Jesus. Whenever we think we have God figured out, it's good to be reminded that we're wrong. Whenever we try to stuff Jesus into a theological, cultural, or political box for our own convenience, it's good to have that box blown open. Whenever we grow complacent, self-righteous, or lazy in our lives of faith, it's good to be brought to our knees by a God whose thoughts are not our thoughts and whose ways are not our ways there are very good reasons to encounter Jesus on the mountaintop. On the other hand, it's not good to fixate on the sublime so much that we desecrate the mundane. Most of life is unspectacular, by which I mean, most of life doesn't dazzle us with non-stop special effects. But all of life, all of life, contains the sacred. The challenge is to cultivate the kind of sight that perceives God in places darker, murkier, murkier and more obscure than a mountaintop. As soon as Peter affirms his experience, he tries to hoard it. What I hear in his plan to make dwellings is an understandable but ultimately misguided attempt to contain, domesticate, protect, and possess the sublime, to harness the holy, to make the fleeting permanent, to keep Jesus shiny, beautiful, and safe upon a mountain. After all, Everything is so good in the clear mountain air, so bright, so holy, so unmistakably spiritual. Why leave? But God says no. Even before Peter is finished speaking, God overshadows him in a bright cloud and tells him to listen to Jesus, not to his own misconceptions about the life of faith. It's Jesus' way, the way of the valley, the way of the cross, the way of humility, surrender, and sacrifice— that Peter must learn to follow. In Matthew's version of the Transfiguration event, the disciples are overcome with fear when God speaks to them out of the cloud. They cower in silence and fall to the ground. But then comes the part of the story I do like. Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Jesus comes and touches his friends, And in that simple, ordinary human encounter of skin on skin, the disciples find solace. Finally, they see the divine in a guise they can bear. As it turns out, Peter, for all his bluster, isn't made for 24-7 transfigurations. He can't handle too much of the spectacular. All he can actually take of God's glory is a tender human hand on his shoulder and a reassuringly human whisper in his ear. Here's the thing. I still yearn for mountaintop experiences, and that's okay. They'll come and go according to God's will and timing, not according to my micromanagement. In that sense, sublime spiritual experiences are easy. They require little from me. I can't control them. What's hard is consenting to follow Jesus back down the mountain. What's challenging is learning to cultivate awe and wonder in the face of the mundane. What's essential is finding Jesus in the rhythms and routines of the everyday, in the loving touch of a friend, in the human voices that tell me, don't be afraid, in the unspectacular business of discipleship, prayer, service, and solitude, in the unending challenge to love my neighbor as myself. With Transfiguration Sunday, we come to the end of another liturgical season. Having seen the bright lights of Epiphany, we prepare now for the long darkness of Lent. We can't know ahead of time what mountains and valleys lie ahead. We can't predict how God will speak and in what guise Jesus might appear. But we can trust in this. Whether on the brightest mountain or in the darkest valley, Jesus abides. Even as he blazes with holy light, his hand remains warm and solid on our shoulders. Even when we're on our knees in the wilderness, he whispers, Do not be afraid. So listen to the ordinary. Keep listening. It is good for us to be here. For books this week, Dan reviews The Death of Truth, Notes on Falsehood in the Age of Trump by Michiko Kakutani. On November 9, 1989, the head of the East German Communist Party announced that citizens of the GDR could cross the border whenever they pleased. And so they did. Others hammered away at the wall that night. The fall of the Berlin Wall was a euphoric and iconic moment that symbolized the end of the Cold War. Just two years later, in 1991, the Soviet Union fell. It felt like the triumph of the West. The historian Francis Fukuyama wrote an essay in 1989 called The End of History. He argued that liberal democracy had triumphed and would become the final form of government. Thirty years later, that view feels painfully naive. Fukuyama has retracted his view, saying that back then he didn't have a sense or a theory about how democracies can go backward, but that now he understands that they clearly can. We now know that democracies can die, that progress is not automatic or inevitable, that the United States is not immune from historical forces that have eroded and even destroyed democracies. For Michiko Kakutani, for many years, a chief book critic of the New York Times and a winner of the Pulitzer Prize, the death of truth and the rise of falsehood go a long way toward explaining the threats posed to American democracy. In some ways, Kakutani explores familiar territory like fake news, the power of the internet, political partisanship, alt right groups, conspiracy theories, disdain for experts and expertise, postmodern subjectivity, and, no big surprise, an American president who was a prolific liar. But what really caught my attention is a theme that she returns to again and again, that today we are losing a sense of shared reality. We are increasingly segregated in terms of politics, culture, geography, and lifestyle. She quotes Obama, who worried that Americans are operating in completely different information systems. Another way to state this, as she does in her last few pages, is that we have increasingly lost a sense of our civic common good. She ends her book by appealing to Washington and Jefferson to that end. A shared sense of reality. Common concerns that bind us together. Important causes about which we can all and should agree. For more on this theme, see my reviews of Robert B. Reich's The Common Good, Miroslav Volz's A Public Faith, How Followers of Christ Should Serve the Common Good, and Mark Leela The Once and Future Liberal, After Identity Politics along with my conversation interview with Laila called Our Common Good. For Films This Week, Dan reviews Tricky Dick and the Man in Black. On April 17, 1970, President Richard Nixon hosted Johnny Cash at the White House for an evening of country music. In fact, this was a naked attempt by Nixon to co-opt Cash in the Republican Party's larger Southern strategy, that courted voters in the South by an appeal to law-and-order patriotism, as opposed to those, quote, communist and countercultural lefties who were protesting the Vietnam War. The film opened with a Nixon phone call recorded on the formerly secret tapes to this effect. And who better to symbolize conservative patriotism than Cash, who had even praised Nixon's war strategy on his national television show. He even specifically instructed Cash to sing two songs, Oki from Muskogee" and Welfare Cadillac. But Nixon miscalculated and the event backfired. Cash had just been to Vietnam on a concert tour a few weeks before he went to the White House. He had in mind a different sort of patriotism, and so he didn't sing what the president requested, but instead did a provocative anti-war song called What is Truth. Nixon squirmed in his seat. This Netflix original documentary draws upon extensive archival film footage and the commentaries of Johnny Cash's sister, brother, pastor, manager, bandmates, and especially his son. The lesson here? Don't mess with the man in black. For more on the legend, see my review of the biography by Robert Hilburn, Johnny Cash, The Life. And finally, for poetry on this Transfiguration Sunday, The Opening of Eyes by David White. That day I saw beneath dark clouds The passing light over the water And I heard the voice of the world speak out. I knew then, as I had before, life is no passing memory of what has been, nor the remaining pages in a great book waiting to be read. It is the opening of eyes long closed. It is the vision of far-off things seen for the silence they hold. It is the heart, after years of secret conversing, speaking out loud in the clear air, It is Moses in the desert, fallen to his knees before the lit bush. It is a man throwing away his shoes as if to enter heaven and finding himself astonished, opened at last, fallen in love with solid ground. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for February 23rd, 2020. I'm Debbie Thomas.